Greetings, listeners. For the past few months, we have been enjoying a deep exploration of Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's Three Books of Occult Philosophy, and now it's time for us to make a brief detour. This bonus episode is an interview with my friend Michael Sanborn, who is releasing a translation of a new book, Letters to Friends of the Spirit, by Sylvie Boyer-Camax and Remy Boyer. This is a book about mysticism, Martinism, and modern Rosicrucianism, and I am certain you will find the interview quite interesting. We will be returning to occult philosophy in our next episode, so for now, please enjoy this bonus interview. Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will lose This is the Arnamancy Podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Uh, Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Reverend Eric, and I am here today with my friend Michael Sanborn, who is the translator and designer of the new book, Letters to Friends of the Spirit, Martinist Views and Others, by Sylvie Boyer-Camax and Remy Boyer. Uh, Michael, thank you very much for having me in your home and feeding me awesome chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> You're very welcome. It's good to have you. Uh, so first of all, like this is, uh, this is a translation from French. It's kind of like new material. Can you give us a little bit of background about this book? Like who is Remy Boyer? Who is Sylvie Boyer-Camax? And what were you translating? All right. Well, uh, Remy Boyer is uh, an author and lecturer uh, on the, the subject of uh, initiatory traditions uh, and uh, particularly the interaction of initiatory traditions and uh, the artistic avant-garde. Uh, he's a, a very well known in esoteric circles in Europe, especially France, Spain, Portugal, and Italy, also Romania, I think. Uh, and has been uh, a figure of some prominence for, uh, you know, since the 80s, I'd say. Oh, wow. Uh, his, uh, Sylvie Boyer-Camax is his wife. Uh, and, uh, I've been translating books of his. This is the fourth that I've uh, uh, translated with his authorship. But this is the first one of, uh, of the translations that I've worked on that is a collaboration between the husband and wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, this started as a series of Letters to the Friends of the Spirit is the book. And it started as a series of, uh, of what were called briefs rather than letters at the time uh, that were sent out to various initiatory groups during lockdown, essentially. Okay. Uh, because uh, what were people going to be doing while they were at home? And so these were... Uh, uh, very interesting explorations of various esoteric matters uh, that went out over the time. And I thought uh, when I was receiving them that they would probably be uh, restricted to uh, these uh, closed circles. 
I was very surprised that once it was all over to hear that uh, uh, they were to be published. And so uh, that's, uh, that's what we've been doing. And unlike the other books, uh, the three books of his that I've published so far, that were English translations of things that have been published in French and other languages years previously, this is a, a book that is being published this year in French, English, Italian, Spanish, and Portuguese. Uh, so it's all new for everybody uh, uh, at once, which is, I think, a, a new phenomenon in the publishing of these works. So the material in these books is kind of like outside my normal realm of things that I like read about and research and stuff. And I'm, so I'm kind of curious, uh, my impression as an outsider, a lot of this is sort of based around various traditions that practice or study esoteric Christianity. And a lot of it is is very like continental, sort of like European stuff that maybe also has some influence over here. Um, but it kind of feels to me like a lot of this material is, uh, at least up until now, has been fairly kind of like unavailable or difficult to access for uh, American English speakers. Is that is that an accurate assessment? That's my take on it as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly that was part of my motivation in wanting to translate and publish these works. Uh, I mean, part of it is that uh, they resonate with me very deeply, um, so I wanted to share them, but also that they are so different from what's been generally available in the English-speaking world, at least to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, I thought uh, this is something that ought to happen. Yes, they're uh, a particular uh, take on esoteric Christianity that is very much in the tradition of uh, uh, French Illuminism, in general, and Martinism in particular, but that includes Swedenborgianism and works of Jakob Böhme and other influences that are particularly that Christian Illuminist, the kinds of mystical Christianity that has resonance with Renaissance Hermeticism, mm -hmm. which I think is kind of the essence of what French Illuminism is. Uh, and so you have a kind of synoptic view of the Hermetic great man and the um, primordial Adam and uh, the, the, the Anthropos by any other name mm -hmm. uh, and uh, all of the mysticism and practice that comes out of that. So you would kind of draw um, like a direct line of influence between Renaissance Hermeticism and, and this material like that you've been translating. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that's, uh, that's cool. Uh, yeah, the the uh, uh, the works of uh, Martinus de Pasquale, who's mm -hmm. really the root teacher of the Martinist tradition, is uh, very much in the the Hermetic line, uh, and the Masonic influence, of course, is undeniably Hermetic, mm -hmm. uh, as well as the uh, the alchemical influences and the Rosicrucian influences. They're all different rays of what came out of the initial explosion of the Renaissance Hermetic Revival. And, uh, but where the, the French Illuminist phenomena, it, it sort of filters, uh, it just always keeps the Christian aspect in it. Uh, whereas some things like uh, uh, the Outer Order of the Golden Dawn, for instance, uh, has no overt Christian influence and other things that are uh, of a hermetic influence, the, the Aram Solus and other things, they're not, they're explicitly not Christian. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not what the French Illuminist tradition was about. I think it's a pretty good, uh, you could argue pretty effectively that Renaissance Hermeticism was also fairly esoteric Christianity stuff too. I mean, at its core, I guess it kind of had to be. <laughs> it, it, it did kind of have to be. And, and there, uh, you know, you have the uh, uh, influence of uh, uh, Plethon, mm -hmm. uh, uh, who is, you know, going to be speaking in a Christian context, but we know now that he had a, a, a secret pa a pagan side. And probably mm -hmm. there was that thread going on under the surface in the Renaissance. Right. And that came out in various other ways in uh, uh, in the later Renaissance. And, of course, then you had the, the Kabbalistic uh, 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 expressions, not all of which were Christian Kabbalist, but Jewish mm -hmm. Kabbalist. Right. So there was a, a diversity that happened. And I think especially in the English school of esotericism, mm -hmm. and especially in the 20th century, there's been uh, a movement away from the Christian establishment uh, to have a, a, a non-Christian uh, or, or pagan expression of these things. Uh, and that you find that in, in France, too. But French Illuminism in particular... Uh, is that blending of the two. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you look at uh, Illuminism in Wikipedia, in the, in, in the English Wikipedia, um, I, or at least the last time I checked, it uh, doesn't mention uh, Christianity. Uh, and if you look in the French uh, Wikipedia for the definition of Illuminism, it's explicitly the blending of, uh, of Hermetic and Christian uh, traditions. Oh, interesting. Okay, I have to ask you an annoying question now. Mm -hmm. don't, please don't hate me. <laughs> I'll do so, my best. <laughs> <laughs> so like when you say Illuminism, uh, my brain immediately goes to Illuminati, which uh, I know you and I both know that there's a lot of depth to like sort of the story of the Bavarian Illuminati and the, you know, the sort of weird esoteric Freemasonry of Germany in the, in the, at the end of the 18th century. Or if not depth, at least complexity. <sighs> at least confusion and, and charlatanry <laughs> yes. and stuff. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, but, uh, but when you're talking about Illuminism, it's not really related to the Illuminati. Can you um, maybe expand on it a little bit? Like, so you were, you were comparing it to sort of like a continuation of the Renaissance of Renaissance Hermeticism, but are there other sort of like aspects to it or, or trends in it that like a modern reader should be aware of? Well, the way I'd frame it is that you have to begin with the difference between uh, the, uh, the meaning of the word in English and in French. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, in English, Illuminism is the belief that there's a kind of fundamental transformative knowledge that, that changes our experience. It's kind of like Gnosticism, but doesn't necessarily have to be Christian. And sometimes Gnosticism has a connotation of cosmic pessimism, and that's not necessarily true of the term Illuminism. Mm -hmm. you know, and I think uh, Alistair Crowley, with his scientific Illuminism, is pointing at Illuminism in that sense. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that belief that we, there's an Illumination, and that Illumination changes everything. And that's all there is to it. Okay. In okay. French, it is that, but it is also always that that uh, that tradition uh, of, of of that orientation to Christianity uh, in light of the Hermetic revival. So, seeing that we, now we know uh, what uh, Hermes taught in the the Corpus Hermeticum, uh, but we also know the truth of what Jesus taught, and we see that they are both 
um, facets of the same truth and we integrate them. Mm -hmm. And so we would see that, um, especially in Martinez de Pasquale, but uh, uh, in uh, to the French, uh, uh, Emmanuel Swedenborg would be considered also uh, a luminist in that sense. I mean, he's also considered like a, a, a theosopher above all, but uh, the application of Swedenborgian thought in France is luminist. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, Jakob Böhme, uh, to the, uh, the, his impact in uh, France, which is very much tied up with Louis-Claude de Saint-Martin, mm -hmm. who was the original translator of most of, of Jakob Böhme's works into French, uh, okay. and a big uh, uh, proponent of his work in his later career. Um, is all considered to be part of um, uh, Illuminism in the French tr uh, sense. This makes me think of like, uh, at least in some of the scholarship in the mid 20th century, and I don't know what they're thinking now. I, it's very difficult to keep up with everything that's written. Um, you get the sense that like the hermetic part of Renaissance hermeticism kind of lost favor in the 17th century after you know, Casabon did his, you know, textual analysis and like, this isn't older than Moses, this is young stuff. But uh, I guess that doesn't really take into account the fact that like, by that point, uh, occultists and esotericists and mystics had already fallen so in love with the Hermetica that it, it was never going anywhere. It just sort of sank in and its its talons were hooked into European esotericism you know, forever. Like, they're still here. <laughs> yeah, I think the turning point uh, uh, with uh, Isaac Kassabin, uh is as far as the uh, uh, the pinnacles of power and influence and respectability, the royal courts, the universities, uh, yeah, they would have been, well, this stuff has been debunked. Mm -hmm. But uh, the uh, enthusiastic woo-wooists of the time were not deterred at all. <laughs> And that kept on being a, a, a strong uh, influence. I feel like, yeah, the the, esoter the enthusiastic woo-wooists of yesterday are the uh, spiritual ancestors of today. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so when you worked on Letters to the Friends of the Spirit, you're saying that there are, what, like five translations that are coming out um, kind of around the same time. Like maybe yes. not maybe not the same hour, but like in the same, you know, month period or something. Um did you work with the other translators at all? Did you guys get together and have, you know, Zoom calls where you're like, what does this word mean? Or how are we supposed to deal with this? No, we have a lot of autonomy. Basically, um, Remy Boyer uh, sent out the files and said, go. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> Was there a race? That's the other question. Did no, you guys... absolutely not. <laughs> you guys didn't have a little leaderboard where you're like, I'm at 30,000 words. Where are you at? <laughs> no, for one thing, we all speak different languages. Oh, sure. Yeah. But yeah, okay. Well, that's interesting. And so you um, so you got all of these uh, letters originally in French. Yes. And then worked through them. When you deal with, you know, mystical language um, in another language, does the communication barrier, you know, because I mean, I know that French isn't your first language, mm -hmm. but like, does the does the language barrier um, alter your uh, experience or understanding of, you know, some of the like terms, the, the mystical terms, you know, because I, I mean, mysticism is always couched in in metaphor and, uh, you know, turns of phrase that might, you know, make sense to a native speaker, but maybe not to a translator. Like, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges and roadblocks you run into when you're translating that stuff? 
Well, uh, I, I think that w with any kind of esoteric author, uh, even in one's own language, uh, there's a greater or lesser degree of resonance to use uh, an intuition-heavy word, or a, 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 later, a greater or lesser degree of uh, going with one's grain, mm -hmm. uh, or, or not. Uh -huh. you know? uh, and uh, the, my introduction to Remy Boyer's works was when I was looking through uh, a large group of, uh, of documents mm -hmm. uh, of, of the, uh, the Illuminist tradition, and finding much of it not landing with me at all. Uh, and then all of a sudden finding something of Remy Boyer's and having it be like this vast gong. Uh, and even though it was from a different uh, uh, language, uh, it was, I, this is, this is really speaking to me at a very fundamental level. And um, so I, I couldn't get enough. I still, still can't. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's been five years, maybe four years. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we uh, probably first sat down to talk about this stuff three and a half, four years ago. Yeah. And you were already like deep into translating your first piece by him, your first book. True. Yeah. True. Um, so, uh, and, and so I found that, uh, his, uh, his way of expressing things, his points of reference, uh, a lot of, uh, the thinkers that he's influenced by and references, uh, were all very much part of, uh, my, uh, personal framework as well. So it's been very natural to be able to work through it. And when I'm translating and uh, there's something that doesn't entirely uh, uh, make sense at first, uh, most of the time it, it isn't difficult to sit down with a sense of it and realize at a certain point it clicks and uh, this is what is meant and to be able to move forward. And this comes out um, in high relief when with some of these books, there's a preface or something by another French author, and it's so much more difficult to translate a five-page preface by this person than it is to translate 200 pages by Rémy Boyer. Oh, that's interesting. It's almost like the language of mysticism is so difficult to... or, or the mystical experience itself is so difficult to uh, communicate to another person that when the person who writes the introduction tries to do it in the plainest possible language it becomes even more more difficult to get to that's huh. certainly language is not well suited for it oh yeah uh, that's and, for sure. uh but there are people who can uh build a linguistic structure that refers indirectly that can and and can do so very effectively mm -hmm. and of course it it all depends on the point of view of the of the observer and for me, these work very well, which is why I am working with them. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, uh, other things don't work for me and work for others. Uh, uh, I think of, let me come up with an example, the Gene Keys. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, uh, I, I ha have friends who are intelligent and have a, a, a very refined tastes, and they're uh, uh, deeply involved with the gene keys. And I look at it, it's in English, but it might as well be just clumps of Play-Doh. I, I, I just, I cannot <laughs> understand what the attraction is. Um, uh, and yet, some people find that it's, it's just what they need for their guidance. And it's a very peculiar thing about how 
varied our individual constitutions are and what communicates to some people and not others. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think about sort of like, um, you know, the popularity of uh, of new thought or, mm. or new age, right? You know, like new thought stuff is uh, very comfortable for people who are, you know, kind of stuck in a modern materialistic worldview and have this like, you know, if I just say good things to myself in the mirror every morning, everything's going to be great. And then, you know, new age is, I mean, it, it speaks to people. It makes me sort of be like, I don't think I need that many crystals. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, I kind of want to reclaim the term new age. Actually, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm, 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 I'm not, very, this is, I don't know of anybody else who is really with me on this. Oh, but I was just thinking, yeah, okay, keep going, please, please. But it, it, for me, new age basically means folk neoplatonism. Folk Neoplatonism. Oh, I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in, like any other uh, uh, genre, the quality of it can vary widely. I mean, New Age can be uh, the most uh, provincial aura photography um, a person that you meet at a he healing festival mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, it can be uh, a new science of Rupert Sheldrake, mm. who is a profound intellectual, mm -hmm. but you could easily lump him in the new age movement. Uh, and yet his work is excellent and he has enormous integrity mm -hmm. um, and, or anything in between, you know, Buckminster Fuller could be new age if you squint. That's true. I was, I was also just thinking in the early 20th century and maybe the, I'm not exactly sure where it started, but I think it was like the early, early 1900s, um, the Southern jurisdiction of the Scottish Rite in the United States, their magazine was called the new age. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and it was actually surprisingly filled with like some weird, woo-woo stuff that modern-day Scottish Rite Masons, who tend to be a little bit more conservative, would be like, oh, what is this? Why is there writing about UFOs in this Mason magazine? <laughs> and, of course, um, A.R. Orage, the uh, British editor who was a prominent disciple of uh, Gurdjieff, uh -huh. uh, had a New Age journal in the early mm. 20th century in the UK. Um, that was where, uh, uh, among other people, Dmitry Mitrinovich, the teacher, uh, one of the teachers of uh, Alan Watts, uh -huh. published, whose stuff is very far out and very interesting if you can find it. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe I might have been a little bit unfair to New Age. Um, so well, there's, there's I will... some things that that it, it's understandable to have a certain yeah. amount of uh, because people don't always show a lot of discernment, and it's. Uh, it's True. understandable to show a certain amount of frustration, but mm -hmm. it's just uh, the way that, uh, you know, people want to um, uh, reclaim certain uh, epithets. Mm -hmm. um, I won't go into any particulars because I'm not, I'm not the target of those, but I am the target of the, of the frickin' New Ager, and I would <laughs> gladly wear that uh, uh, label and reclaim it for my own. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I'm happy to have you be, you know, Portland's new age king. <laughs> I'll take it. Let's get a little bit more specific about like the kind of topics that are covered in, uh, in the letters. Like, uh, so we've already discussed, uh, Pasquale and, um, San Martin. That's the name of the Martinist mm -hmm. guy. Um, so we know that there's Martinism in here, but there's also, you know, themes of, um, Hermetic Kabbalah. There's, um, Rosicrucianism. Um, I assume there's probably some uh, Freemasonry 
like probably some liberal or really esoteric Freemasonry going on. Like, can you uh, talk about some of the the big themes that kind of run throughout the book? Like, what audience was receiving this? Like, I know it was initiatic orders, but were they all from the same school of initiatic order, or was it kind of a group of friends from multiple countries who were in multiple different types of lodges and orders and stuff? Like, what was uh, what was How'd the group sort of get assembled? Well, there's some of this that I don't know. But okay. from what I understand so far is that there is a, a network of orders, a college of orders, uh, that uh, have very varied traditions, but that have a, uh, a, a, an alliance of a kind. Uh, and I've compared it before to um, the early 20th century um, federation Fedosi, mm -hmm. uh, that you're probably familiar with, uh, that Freemasons, Martinists, Rosicrucians, uh, certain kinds of Hermeticists, and others formed a federation of initiatory societies. Uh, and uh, uh, that there was this idea that they'd be able to uh, uh, have a united front and be more effective in uh, having a permanent presence in the world. But it, uh, it, it they tried a few times and it, it fell apart after not too long in both cases. But in at least in Europe, um, they've continued doing that kind of thing mm -hmm. since then. And uh, there's been in France, at least since the 80s that I know of, uh, a, a series of groups. One was called the Group of Thebes. Uh, there was before that it was called the Rainbow, uh, and the after that the Circle of Alexandria. Uh, and now I think that network exists without a name. Mm. I don't know if you ever saw the show uh, the the Middleman, but I call it the Organization Too Secret to Know. Why don't we just call them the Invisible College? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, although it is, there are people that, uh, there are groups that are involved and groups that are not. Okay. And so within this particular milieu, um, uh, there are certain features in common. One of them, I think, is a, uh, an acceptance of uh, non-duality, uh, the, uh, the, the orientation towards non-duality as it's understood in Eastern schools such as Advaita Vedanta, Kashmir Shaivism. And others, oh, well, and, and uh, uh, Buddhist teachings, especially uh, Mahamudra and Dzogchen. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then with that in mind, you can then see Western traditions that ha have a non-dual orientation. Plotinus is often mentioned. Uh, uh, Meister Eckhart within Christianity is often considered to be non-dual. And so that is uh, something that runs through... Uh, all of these traditions that they recognize the importance of non-dual thought, thought's the wrong word, uh, the non-dual perspective uh, in, uh, in the traditions. Uh, and uh, in the terms of this particular book, Letters to Friends of the Spirit, non-duality as it applies to esoteric Christianity in its many forms. Hmm. Can you back up a little bit and talk about exactly what you mean by non-duality? In a way, no, I can't. Oh, good. <laughs> because I, I, as I'm talking, I'm going to be using words, and all right. the words are going to be in terms of what they mean and what they don't mean. So we're inevitably trapped in duality as I'm talking. And yet we can point indirectly 
Okay, I mean, thank you, Plato. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, so... But then in terms of Plato, we would be talking about the one. Right. And, and, and I think both Plato and Plotinus and others talk about what, when we say the one, of course, we don't, we're, not point, we're not effectively expressing the one because there are these words that we're using in an intellect that is refracted down several levels of emanation mm -hmm. to the point where it's very far from the one, and yet... Um, we can point. Okay, well then, how about this? If you've got non-duality, you also have groups that believe in duality, so maybe you can talk about what duality is so we can be like, it's not that. <laughs> I think it's... Because, of course, in a non-dual school, you will uh, be... Uh, there will be perceptions of the dual, mm -hmm. of, of, of how the dual... Uh, how dualistic vision manifests mm -hmm. uh, and imposes an image of itself in the boundless non-dual, uh, a, a true dualist school would say, oh, but that's real. Uh, very commonly in the Western tradition, I would say that Satan is real, that evil is oh. real, or, uh, or even if Satan isn't real, that there is a that there is an evil that we must fight against, that there is a fallen condition that is real, uh, that to disbelieve it is to fall into error and right that okay. is an essentially dualist position okay yeah i mean that kind of makes me think of like that you know bringing up satan as an example there makes me think of universalism a little bit you know mm -hmm. sort of like uh or what is it i think in the corpus hermeticum it even talks about um the measure of evil in a soul is uh, equivalent to its like distance from uh god who is sort of the source of the good, right? So there isn't really a sense of an evil and a good as much as there is sort of like uh, the one and the distance from the one, however far you can get on the fringe from the concept of the one. Yes, everything uh, emanating, so to speak, from mm -hmm. Plato, uh, uh, or possibly <laughs> he, even He from, would love to hear that. <laughs> from, from Pythagoras uh -huh. has to do this dance of uh, a... They, underlying unity mm -hmm. that is of central importance and the appearance of diversity and even shadow mm -hmm. uh, and you find like a variety of approaches to that even within the different chapters of the corpus hermeticum mm -hmm. and uh, plotinus goes over again and again different facets of how to understand this and how to uh how to grasp the Pro, uh, provisional nature of anything that is other than the one uh, and yet it, he never entirely wrestles it to the ground which i think is is a set, uh, that that aspect of language again i think it is too and i also think um i mean even more than the aspect of language it's the aspect of uh how do you share those kinds of experiences you know mm -hmm. they 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 can be difficult for the the mystic or the practitioner to uh, comprehend even when they are thinking about it themselves and they don't have to explain it in language when they just have to be like, you know, in your own head, what did, what did you see? What did you experience? What did you perceive? Uh, and then turning, you know, turning any perception into language that's just filled with problems. Uh, uh, but I, I think that brings up something about uh, varying levels of, uh, of competency in any particular domain. We might talk about tennis uh, that, you know, I, I should maybe begin with 
there's uh, an equality that we all have as being emanations of the one, or if we want to use theistic language, uh, all equally children of God. Uh, there's a fundamental equality uh, uh, to our relations with each other. Uh, given any particular area of competency, we can see that there uh, are, are differences of ability. Uh, in, in tennis, there's a tennis master and there's a, ten, a, a tennis novice, and there's no, um, uh, not much can come from pretending that there's not a difference between those two, uh, two uh, uh, levels of, uh, of expertise. Mm -hmm. uh, and in uh, the, the arena of, say, mystical understanding, uh, we have varying levels of competence. And so uh, a great mystic like Meister Eckhart, uh, uh, some of them have the ability to either presence uh, in, in communion with them or through uh, the very careful, attentive, skillful use of language can convey more of the truth or at least not get in the way of the truth in the way that expression um, occurs. Hmm. Uh, and uh, so I think that's, that gets very important when we start using language or when we start translating. You know, I'm in the situation of uh, uh, working with texts that I believe possess a certain amount of clarity, uh -huh. uh, and I do my best to not get in the way of it. Uh, and right. and uh, over time, things that I've translated um, earlier, um, I look back at them and I see depths that were not part of my understanding at the time that I was doing the translation. And yet the words are structured in a way that the underlying meaning can shine through, hopefully, mm -hmm. uh, even uh, uh, dis uh, despite the limitations of my own understanding. So uh, that makes me curious about your experience with these letters as you received them. I, I guess my assumption is that there was sort of like a weekly newsletter or like a periodic sort of like every once in a while, um, you know, Remy Boyer would send out an email and... Yep, it was a weekly email. Weekly email. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, did you find them to have sort of a quality that would require you to, I don't know, like print, print them out and sit in your favorite chair and sit with them for a while and think about it and try to figure out like what the experience was, was the, or was the language clear enough that it would kind of hit you with a certain insight? Like how did, how would, how did you experience these letters? Like what drew you to them to make you feel like the translation was something that you had to do? Well, I would receive them. I wouldn't try to understand them until I had gone through phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence and uh, uh, translated the whole thing into English and then go through the entire thing and try to get the gist of it and then make adjustments to it and then just iteratively uh, 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 go through and as I caught the gist of it, adjust the translation to, until it was uh, the best that I could do. Then uh, I would uh, share that mm -hmm. uh, and uh, sometimes get feedback. Uh, and uh, then uh, in the process of uh, doing the book, I came back to them, you know, say a year later, mm -hmm. uh, and then adjusted the, refined the translations further. And then, of course, as we edit and we proofread, you know, just mm -hmm. polishing further and further uh, to the point where we have them now. And the the resonance of them makes them, uh, each each of these 44 letters in the book, there's a central 
treatise that's something else mm -hmm. but the letters themselves are there they're 22 before in the first series and 22 in the second series uh each of them form a kind of portal into their own unique realm and falling through them they all have a very individual character uh and uh, as i come back to them again and again I fall through them, some of them more than others mm -hmm. uh, 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 at this point. Some of them were immediately a very deep dive. Mm -hmm. uh, others, I'm still, I go a little ways into them. Uh, uh, and others, uh, they started with a very little penetration and later broke through into something very large. And uh, my general assumption is that even the ones that I'm only going a certain way into at this point will eventually open to me more fully. Your experience of these letters is so intimately tied to your uh, study of the language of the letters, right? Like, because you basically, like, it was through your translation efforts that you kind of unfolded the meaning of them. Yes. Oh, this makes me wonder, like, do you, so do you feel like if you took that same amount of attention that you had to pay to these and applied it to like um, you know mystical texts that are written in English. Would you have a different experience of those English texts? Well, it depends on the source of them. There, there are uh, English writers that uh, I resonate, you know, very oh, fully with. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think of uh, uh, E.J. Gold. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, or uh, actually, a, a, a very good example would be A. H. Almas. Mm -hmm. I cannot get enough of his stuff, and paying very close attention to uh, him pays very great rewards. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, someone like uh, no disrespect, Drunvelo Melchizedek. Um, I could look at a, a, something of his, like a, a paragraph of his, of his, for a month, and. I don't think I would get all that much out of it. No, uh, you know, and, and all praise to people who find him very profound. It's mm -hmm. just not working for me. Right. Okay. That's, that makes sense. Yeah. I guess I've been, I've been thinking about that a lot. Um, sort of like the, uh, you know, the, the experience of close reading and mm -hmm. the difference that you have between like close reading and just trying to get through a text. Uh, you know, you gave me a copy of your translation, um, maybe like, a couple of weeks ago, sort of in preparation for this. And I was totally like, oh man, I'm going to spend some time with this. But uh, when I got into it, uh, I did realize very quickly that it was not something that I was going to get through quickly, right? Like yes. it, um, you know, I read the first, I read the first uh, few letters and like, there's a lot of beautiful stuff in there, but there's also, you know, mystical concepts that I'm not super familiar with or traditions that I'm not super familiar with. Um, but the, the kind of like, uh, visionary aspect of it is it deserves time. Like it, it really deserves sort of some sitting with. And uh, that was kind of impressive. Like it really reads like, I mean, it reads like you love it. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Uh, and it's true. Yeah, I could tell it, it really, it really just has this feeling to it that it, it does feel like some really, you know, cozy reading. Oh. for somebody who wants to spend some time with it yeah uh one of the things that i, I think helped prepare me for reading uh remy boyer's works was uh my appreciation for the works of uh henri corbin or henry corbin i'll uh -huh. just say uh 
And uh, Henry Corbin is, is a very dense writing style that takes some getting used to, you know, even in mm -hmm. English translation. Um, and yet, uh, I think that they are uh, drinking from the same well, Corbin and Boyer, mm -hmm. um, to an extent that um, uh, familiarity with one helps with the other. Uh, so that helps me see the clarity of it. Uh, but uh, I'd say that Remy Boyer, uh, for all that there's a complexity to it, he does shy away from the fashion in French intellectual writing since, say, the 1980s of uh, complexity for its own sake. Ooh, well, that's kind of nice. <laughs> I'd say so. He he's, uh, uh, tries to cut through to the essentials for all that there is uh, uh, an irreducible density to it. Mm -hmm. um, but he's trying to make it as clear as possible and refers, I think, in the, the uh, first book that um, I gave you a draft of, uh, Freemasonry as a Way of Awakening, uh, he makes a reference to the speech of the specialist who specializes in speech. <laughs> which i think is, is a wonderful way of talking about the french postmodernists. yeah yeah i mean it, it makes me think of like those uh texts that seem like they're going to be very very important and you get into them and you're sort of like what does this sentence say and you break it down and you realize that it doesn't actually say anything <laughs> yes. put so many words in there like it's a complete <laughs> sentence there's a subject a verb object maybe 20 objects but <laughs> but overall uh it conveys very little meaning <laughs> So he he's in the tradition of the continental thinkers, but not to the point where it becomes a, 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 an exercise in obscurity. Mm -hmm. When it comes to topics, like were there sort of metaphorical themes or or recurring themes that like people could look forward to? Like for instance, uh, in one of the early letters, um, there's some uh, mystical interpretation of like the Garden of Eden and stuff like that. Like. Is there a lot of uh, biblical imagery used in this, or does it sort of branch out in various places? Like, what were some of the main characters or main themes in the mystical portions of the text? Like, well, it's so diverse, uh, it's uh, difficult to point out ones that are particularly central, but absolutely there are uh, interpretations of uh, biblical and Christian doctrinal um, uh, uh, teachings. Uh, there are, are Kabbalistic uh, teachings. Uh, certainly Swedenborg is invoked on many occasions. Uh, and the different aspects of Martinism from uh, Martinus de Pasquale and the Elu Cohen and all of the uh, uh, dimensions of that tradition, uh, Saint Martin and the, the, the way of the heart, uh, a certain amount of uh, the material involving the rectified Scottish Rite through uh, uh, Jean-Baptiste Willermose. The secret grammar, which is a kind of uh, Kabbalah of phonemes, uh, is oh. brought uh, up on several occasions. The, the uh, interpretations of the sound k, the interpretations of the sound s. Uh, and then in the midst of it, uh, between the first 22 uh, letters and the last 22 letters, is uh, uh, an essay, the uh, treatise, a little treatise on the Christification of beings, which I think forms the kind of beating heart of the book. And I should say that came, uh, that was delivered after all of the the briefs originally. Uh, so pretty much he went from the beginning of the book to the end, and at the end, he after that, he provided the middle. It's extraordinary. 
I think it's a, it, it describing the central insight in, in a way that is powerful and unifying and uh, orienting and yet elusive to try to reflect on other mm -hmm. than just pointing at it and saying, well, this has to be encountered to be believed, to be, to, to be appreciated. Uh, it, it is, I think, the... Uh, becomes the the central point of the book and then looking back i can see how all the uh or many of the letters refer back to that central essay um uh even though they were written before it the little treatise on the christification of beings yes which the title of which somewhat uh, uh recalls uh martinus de pasquale's treatise on the uh reintegration of beings mm -hmm. uh, which is very difficult to understand and very long yeah um, you know pasquale um i have never done uh much study of him but um the people i've run into or the people i've interacted with who have been interested in him he sounds like a mysterious and uh fascinating figure yes yes i've, I've referred to him in an earlier talk as uh, a, a Western example of the um, crazy wisdom guru. Right. Uh, I mean, I feel like the Western world has lots of those. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but he is certainly one of them uh -huh. uh, in that every aspect of, uh, of his life, of his teaching, of uh, what was recorded of his interactions with others seems as if he's just barely able to maintain within the conventions of of civilization mm -hmm. uh and just sort of just nearly bursting at the seams filled uh, with some strange insight that a sacred flame that yeah exactly uh but the the treatise which is the only thing surviving of his of his teachings uh well i should say there's the, all of the the rituals of the elder cohen mm -hmm. but um it's the his uh the only didactic expression of his teachings is in this treatise but it was intended for his most advanced initiates uh -huh. and it for it's really has to be seen in the context of people who are at that understanding and have a particular kind of work to do mm -hmm. so we looking at it outside that context it's very baffling uh and a little frustrating and yet um uh, if we can take a step back uh and see the totality of everything that he was doing and what we can tell uh, of his teaching from what his students, especially Saint Martin and Willermos, um, uh, uh, did subsequently, mm -hmm. we can get an idea uh, of what he was about, and all the more so from interpreters like Raymond Boyer and and others who are writing uh, now uh, about that legacy. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, the Rosicrucian stuff that showed up in this? Like, what does Rosicrucianism? mean in um modern uh european esotericism well again uh, i can speak to a degree about uh the the milieu of uh remy boyer and sylvie boyer camax uh but uh, outside of that i don't know a lot of what's going on in in uh, european esotericism in general i mean you know more than me <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, I look at uh, the conversations that are going on with the community around the Rosicrucian Tradition website, and mm -hmm. they're talking about stuff 
I have no idea about. Cool. And yet, when I look within the conversations that are going on around Remy Boyer and his associates, there's a lot of different orders and lineages and things and a really robust conversation going on there. And so uh, I, I have some acquaintance with that, and I mm -hmm. can speak to that to a degree. Um, what was the question? Oh, I was just sort of curious about uh, the sort of Rosicrucian stuff oh, that yes. is showing up in the letters. Uh, and then I right. shifted the question to be like, what's it like over there? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, the uh, the Rosecroix um, material that uh, Remy Boyer uh, goes into is... Uh, and, and it is quite distinct from what uh, is is found in a lot of other places, um, and uh, it's really you see that in a lot of detail in the previous book uh, I published, "Beneath the Veil of Elias Artista: The Rosecroix as a Way of Awakening," uh, and that deals mostly with the Rosecroix as it's manifested in Portugal and Spain, mm. uh, where. Uh, the uh, survival of the Templars in Portugal uh, and their um, integration into the Order of Christ and uh, the, the traditions of courtly love mm -hmm. and of the, um, the troubadours, there we go, the troubadour oh. tradition um, uh, manifests aspects of this Templar tradition that uh, uh, is for the Iberian Peninsula uh, essential to the Rose Croix. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in particular, there was a, a figure called the Divine Amadeus, who is as central to uh, the uh, Rose Croix traditions of Portugal as uh, Christian Rosenkreutz is to the German Bohe uh, Bohemian uh, uh, tr tradition that we're more commonly familiar with in the English-speaking world. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and this ties into all, all the different varieties of visionary Portuguese uh, mysticism, which are very far out and were totally unfamiliar to me until I started reading Remy Boyer. Um, the uh, prophecies of Bandara, uh, the uh, uh, prevalence of the teachings of Joaquim de Fiori uh, in, uh, in the Portuguese tradition, mm -hmm. the cult of the Holy Spirit, as uh, was passed on in Portugal and in the Azores, uh, and I think it's gone into Brazil as mm -hmm. well. Uh, uh, and this is very much a part of the uh, the Rosecroix tradition that Remy Boyer talks about. Okay. And most of the, uh, or a good bit of the Rosecroix material in Letters to the Friends of the Spirit is also found in Beneath the Veil of Elias Artista. Okay. Um, it's, but it's put in in the context of these letters so that uh, it forms an, uh, a facet of a new whole. There's something about, you know, like the general language of it, you know, it's, it's, it's Western esotericism, it's, you know, European esotericism, but it's also just this, it just reminds me what a friggin' enormous field this is. Like, uh, I almost never deal with French, Spanish, or Portuguese esotericism, especially, you know, uh, the, the Christian side of stuff. So there's all this stuff in here where like, you'll say names and I'll be like, I've heard that name before. Like I, I, but yeah, it's a totally different language. This is so amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, reading more of those of the of the letters. And you know, I didn't realize that you had these other three books out before this. So 
there's a lot to catch up on. <laughs> well, I hope you find it interesting. Oh, and I, I neglected to mention Sebastianism in the context of Portuguese visionary mysticism. Well, uh, that sounds like uh, there's a lot of uh, important points, right? You know, St. Sebastian. Oh, wow. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> but just to be a pedantic stick in the mud, by Sebastian, we're referring to Don Sebastian, the uh, vanished Portuguese king. Oh, I have never even heard of this guy. <laughs> uh, tell me more. Well, uh, there's a lot to it, so I don't know I, uh, whether I can do it justice. But uh, there was a, uh, a Spanish king who disappeared at a young age in battle, I think it was. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, Portuguese visionaries have in subsequent generations said that he will return. Uh, at the uh, uh, oh. at, at, uh, at, and reign over the age of the Holy Spirit and have the fifth empire uh, after the four empires uh, from uh, the, the book of, biblical book of Daniel that uh, there will be one that is um, uh, the age of the Holy Spirit that will be the essentially the the uh, kingdom of heaven on earth mm -hmm. and will be uh, uh, ruled over by the mystical presence of king sebastian does every european culture have a returned king legend or a returning king legend he is very much like an arthur but what one of the things that makes uh uh sebastianism particularly um uh, vital is that um it was brought up uh in the 20th century by uh, fernando pessoa the the great only now really being discovered mm -hmm. por uh, uh, a portuguese poet uh, who was also a considerable mystic and initiate and had a lot to say about the Rose Quat tradition, it turns out. Uh, and, uh, but places the, 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 uh, the return of Sebastian and, Bar uh, and uh, Bandera and the, these other figures who I should be able to just trip off my tongue, but I'm failing to. It's all right. But, I don't know their names either. <laughs> but there, there's this whole tradition of, of, uh, or lineage of uh, Sebastianist visionaries, wow. uh, and, but, uh, but has been set on fire in modern times by uh, Fernando Pessoa. And Pessoa now is being coming into greater and greater prominence. There just recently was an English biography of Pessoa uh, uh, published that has gotten a lot of uh, uh, attention recently. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, uh, and, and uh, Sebastianism seems to be a great fascination for uh, Remy Boyer and is featured very prominently uh, in uh, the, this new book, Letters to Friends of the Spirit. Oh, that's, that sounds fascinating. It's just another area that I have just complete ignorance, which is always exciting to discover. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, this has, been, um, this has been really, really amazing. There's a lot of material here to cover. I took a lot of notes, which I don't always do when I'm taking interview, make, making interviews. Uh, so your new book is uh, Letters to Friends of the Spirit, and it's by uh, Remy Boyer and... Uh, Sylvie Boyer Camax. Sylvia, Sylvie Boyer Camax. And uh, your translation is coming out... Uh, this month, May 2022. Okay, excellent. End of May. So I'll make sure that there are links to it in the show notes. Uh, I'll put links to your other books. You've got three uh, previous... Uh, Remy Boyer translations that have come out. Uh, Freemasonry as a Way of Awakening, Mask, Cloak, Silence, uh, Martinism as a Way of Awakening, 
and then uh, beneath the veil of Elias Artista, the Rose Croix as a way of awakening. Thank you very much for sharing all this with me and the, and the chocolate. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. I've enjoyed it. This has been another episode of the Arnomancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnomancy online at arnomancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnomancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnomancy. 